Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. This week, Scott Allen on Theodore Rousseau. Along with Harvard Art Museum's curator, Edouard Kopp, Allen is the co-curator of Unruly Nature, the Landscapes of Theodore Rousseau, a survey of one of the major figures in 19th century French art. The exhibition is at the Getty through September 11th, when it will travel to Copenhagen. Rousseau helped turn French painting away from an academic tradition built around Italy, Poussin, and Claude toward greater naturalism. The Getty exhibition is the first major Rousseau exhibition in North America and the largest Rousseau show in nearly 50 years. The terrific exhibition catalog was published by Getty Publications. On the second segment, we'll revisit my 2014 conversation with St. Louis Art Museum curator Simon Kelly. We'll discuss nationalism in 19th century French art. But first, Scott Allen, after the break. Robert Irwin, All the Rules Will Change, is on view now at the Hirshhorn in Washington, D.C. The first U.S. museum survey outside California in nearly 40 years, the exhibition explores Irwin's work in the pivotal decade of the 1960s and culminates in an immersive new installation created in response to the Hirshhorn's unique architecture. Get more information at hirshhorn.si.edu and explore the limits of perception with a modern master. Support for The Man Podcast comes from Pulitzer Arts Foundation, presenting three exhibitions that reframe the objects and environments of everyday life, July 29th through October 15th, 2016. Exquisite Every Day showcases 18th century European works of decorative art from the J. Paul Getty Museum that highlight the period's achievements in domestic design. The Ordinary Must Not Be Dull explores how Class Oldenburg's soft sculptures playfully alter the material, form, and scale of commonplace items, overturning sculptural conventions. Architecture Collective Raumleber Berlin's commission 4562 Enright Avenue disassembles a structurally unsound St. Louis house, giving its salvaged elements new life inside the Pulitzer as an installation that explores the history, present, and future of urban dwellings. For more information, visit pulitzerarts.org. And we're back. Scott Allen, welcome back to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks very much, Tyler. Happy to be here. So such is the late 20th and now 21st century fascination with Impressionism that when we think of of French landscape art, that's what we think of first. But before there was Impressionism and before there was Courbet and before there was Daubigny, sort of, there was Rousseau. Could you set up Rousseau for us by giving us an understanding of what French landscape painting was in the first decades of the 19th century, the decades before Rousseau really gets going in the early 1830s? Sure. Really crucial development was the French Academy, their institution of a prize, a, um, a prix de Rome, a, a prize in historical landscape in 1817. This prize was meant to encourage Paysage historique or historic landscape, which is basically an idealized mode of landscape, Italianate in influence, looking back to old masters like Poussin and Claude from the 17th century. And this was an elevated poetic mode of landscape that would feature, you know, small figures that were redolent of uh, ancient history or biblical stories, uh, mythology, that kind of thing. 
because it had this human narrative element, it was higher than, you know, more descriptive or natural, naturalistic modes of landscape painting, which we associate, say, with Dutch 17th century painting, more sort of rustic, humble, familiar types of landscape. There is kind of a hierarchy of modes of landscape that the Academy kind of perpetuated. And this prize was designed to kind of encourage the highest form of this kind of idealized Italianate mode of landscape. But what its real impact was, was to give professional legitimacy to landscape as a genre in general. And so what you start seeing is a a big rise in the number of landscape painters in the 1820s and 30s. And even though the Academy is promoting this one particular mode, the reality is in the salon and what collectors are interested in is more naturalistic modes of landscape, picturesque naturalistic modes. So there was there that's sort of the situation at, at the beginning of the century. And Rousseau and the artists of his generation, who kind of come of age in the 1830s, kind of turn away from that classicizing Italianate tradition and embrace northern european models of naturalism and landscape both the dutch 17th century tradition and they're also looking to recent developments across the channel in england think about john constable and artists like that who were becoming fashionable in in france in late 1820s and early 1830s the, the famous story of constable being shown at the 1824 salon in paris and having a big impact on artists like delacroix and then there were sort of dealers sort of showing the work of constable in in paris in in the following years and so russo's part of a milieu that is really interested in what's happening across the channel in watercolor and in other media but he's also looking to dutch 17th century things and some of his earliest patrons are also collectors serious collectors of dutch 17th century art and so there's a way that these kind of new modern french modes of naturalistic landscape painting are keying into a certain market for a certain style of landscape but really with Rousseau, he's kind of busting open the conventions, you know, the perceived kind of constrictive conventions of academic landscape painting. And he's looking at a lot of different sources. He's trying a lot of different materials, graphic and painterly, working on a number of different types of supports, doing all kinds of experimental things with color, and really both developing his skills as a draftsman, which have their origins in his training. Um, he trains with very respected academic landscape painter named Raymond. He has these kind of hardcore academic skills as a draftsman, but then he's also coming of age in the early 1830s in Paris, and it's sort of, you know, the the early moments of, of the Romantic movement in, in France, and he's sort of caught up in all of those enthusiasms and is really pushing painting in sort of a colorist and painterly direction in emulation of artists like Delacroix. And what you see in his work is him kind of oscillating between these different tendencies and sometimes trying to integrate them, sometimes not. He's a really, it's, it's a really open-ended and experimental body of work that's really hard to kind of encapsulate and, and to plot in, in, in terms of a simple narrative. But in his lifetime towards, you know, in the 1850s and 60s, when he was very well established, he was really seen as a kind of a liberatory figure who really expanded the vocabulary of landscape practice, not only stylistically, but but in terms of the subject matter too, like he's 
rejecting the trip to Italy. He's not doing that. He's staying focused in a very kind of patriotic way on France. And France is noteworthy for its extreme regional diversity. And artists like Rousseau are really actively traveling all over, especially in the first half of his career, to kind of embrace that regional diversity of France. And, you know, he's going to relatively remote and artistically neglected regions like the Auvergne in a kind of remote mountainous region in the middle of France and kind of bringing back these remarkable studies and, and really, you know, kind of injecting a really vigorous note into French landscape. And, and doing a lot more work in the open air, a lot more study in the open air and, you know, going farther afield and staying, you know, outdoors longer, going on these very extended trips and really. Well, no, let me, let me jump in there because one of the interesting, I don't know if dichotomies is the right word, but one of the interesting dichotomies to me is that uh, very French, very nationalistic. And yet he must have, I guess, almost gone out of his way to seek influence from Rusdale and, and Habama, given that, of course, neither of them are French. Do we know how or where he, he not only found them, but, I don't know, found the permission, if you will, to to follow, to go down that rabbit hole? Well, I think, I mean, first of all, I mean, the way that the Dutch school is sort of being written into art history at this moment is that, first of all, it, it was sort of seen to be as a kind of a, a democratic democratic art kind of that appealed to like a broad base of the population and not just a sort of an aristocratic or royal kinds of thing. And given some of these sort of revolutionary and Republican energies that are kind of bubbling up to the surface politically in France in the 1830s, um, there was that, there was a political appeal to Dutch art and some of Rousseau's closest associates were, you know, pretty far left and, you know, sort of democratic Republicans and that kind of thing. So there was a political appeal to Dutch landscape. And because the Dutch focused on their native local kind of landscapes um, that they were most intimately familiar with, there was a way that Dutch art kind of authorized French artists to do a similar thing, focus on you know, local native landscapes. And so in, in a way, emulate the Dutch school rather than simply just, you know, do paintings of windmills and Dutch rivers and fields and that kind of thing. So it's more, it's more a model that they established for a kind of native landscape that embraced, you know, the, the local landscape, no matter how sort of quote unquote humble or trivial. And there was very much an, a notion emerging at the time of, you know, art being a product of, its particular kind of culture and climate and, you know, geographical situations and artists being very much kind of rooted in their native culture and soil and expressing that, you know, through these kind of local landscapes and, and, and Russo very much, you know, subscribed to that, that notion. So, so speaking of those local landscapes, Rousseau is, is quite often seen as, you know, the key pivot away from academicism as we were talking about and toward realism Yet he, it, it, it seems that he's still really interested in these kind of academic distinctions between etude and tableau and esquisse in these kind of very specific French ideas about what very specific kinds of paintings and near paintings are. What, what kind of are those things? What are those three or four things? And does understanding the differences between them help us understand why Rousseau is important? 
part of the reason I focused on those distinctions is it's it it they offer a kind of a, a user's guide to the exhibition. We wanted to really represent the full range of his practice, small to large scale private, public, public exhibition pieces, you know, kind of more experimental things done in the studio. And when you have some basic knowledge of those categories, it helps you navigate the exhibition in a way which has many different categories of work. And these were categories that generally obtained in French art at the time, not just with Rousseau, but, you know, he did have that academic training. And to a certain extent, his art maintains those categories. Etude is 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 basically you know a, a, an informal private study done directly after nature. You know, put very simply, etude just means study, and it usually meant you know a study after nature. Esquisse is sort of loosely translates as sketch, and in in the French context, that usually meant a kind of a preliminary preparatory sketch of sort of the composition that would become you know finished uh, picture. And then tableau is the you know the sort of the final studio composition, and a boche is the tableau at the very beginning, at its very beginning stages. So like the initial lay-in of the final painting, and so these were te- you know these these different types of production were very much instilled in him through through his training and by what other artists were doing that were important to him. But the interesting thing about Rousseau and and his generation, the so-called Barbizon school, and I tried to sort of describe this in the catalog, is that these categories still apply to a large extent, but they're also put under a lot of pressure. And it's how they break down that becomes kind of interesting. There are a lot of ambiguous works where you can kind of argue both sides. You know, is it finished? Is it not finished? Is it a a sketch for a tableau that he never ended up painting? Or is it a a sort of sketch, sketchy tableau that he kind of left in that state and was happy with. These the, the standards and the criteria are beginning to shift over the course of his lifetime from the 1830s to the late 1860s. And as those categories break down, you know, we're preparing the way for Impressionism where, you know, sketch and finish, these distinctions really start collapsing. But that process begins with Rousseau and his generation. So from a technical point of view, his works are really interesting. And when we first acquired the picture that the Getty owns back in 2007, it was this kind of conversation that the curators and conservators were having. This was a large, quite sketchy picture that was clearly a composed, you know, scene that had a preliminary oil sketch, but was not nearly as finished as some of the other large scale works that he was doing and showing publicly in the salon. So it was this kind of ambiguous work to us that did not seem to conform to what, you know, our sort of notion of Rousseau's art was. And so for me, it was useful to kind of learn more about, you know, these terms and the sort of the hierarchy of production and value informing them. Let me let me let me jump in for just a second. The the painting the Getty bought is is a Forest of Fontainebleau from around eighteen fifty ish. Yeah, late forties, early fifties. Which which of that group would you count that painting as? As a as a tableau or as more of a I think I mean, first of all, it's a private work. It's not a work that he exhibited in public or sold to a private collector during his lifetime. So there's a freedom of handling in it which one does encounter 
in some of his more private work when it, the work that he belabored the most obsessively and kind of brought to the highest degree of finish were certain public exhibition pieces for the salon or for certain high stakes commissions for important patrons of his. And this was not one of those. So it's Rousseau basically painting for himself. and But its characteristics are very much in line with the ebauche. And that's how it was categorized at the end of his life. The paint is very thin. It's relatively freely applied. But it's a more advanced ebauche than others that he painted, where there might just be one tone and a lot of exposed canvas. The Getty picture is as a composition and as a painted surface, relatively complete in a way and kind of satisfying as a picture, even though it's kind of been left in this, you know, quote unquote, kind of preliminary state. And what the interesting that happens, thing that happens during Rousseau's lifetime is that there's a certain audience for this kind of work who actually prefers it to his more finished work, a, a kind of an insider crowd of certain collectors, artists, connoisseurs, critics who see Rousseau in, in many ways at his best in these kind of private moments when he he can kind of let loose and, and do something relatively spontaneously and not sort of belabor something to death, which was sort of a criticism that that starts being applied to him in, in, with some of his later work and some of his later salon pieces. So there is a kind of an insider audience developing for this kind of work that values them very highly and appreciates them. And there would be a market for them, you know, primarily after Rousseau's death. But the fact remains that a picture like the Getty painting would have sold for a fraction of the price. You know, some of his more finished pictures that, that the average collector was seeking. So it's it's a complicated situation and you know the criteria of value are shifting and it's important to remember that you know artists have many d- different audiences and different markets and it's never just one thing you know he's playing to the salon critics he's playing to certain sets of collectors and he, and he's doing things privately for himself as well the works look very very different as a result Rousseau works both in plain air famously in a kind of lean-to structure of his own design. And he differentiated the work he made in plain air from his indoor-made studio paintings, kind of working in the more traditional way. Could you pick an example of each and point to how they're similar and how they're different and how Rousseau might have found that difference meaningful or useful? You know, so outdoor study, and this is an academic teaching too, outdoor study is foundational for becoming a landscape painter. That's how you train your eye and your hand and stock your memory and kind of learn how to deal with certain types of motifs and compositions, atmospheric effects. It's, you know, going outdoors to sketch is foundational. And there's a strong tradition of outdoor oil sketching that goes back to, you know, the mid 18th century, uh, you know, particularly in Italy. And so Rousseau's beginnings, I mean, he does a lot of outdoor oil sketches in his early years. I mentioned earlier his trip to the Auvergne, but he's you know traveling in other parts of France too and doing open air oil sketches. These are generally painted on paper, and the choice of support is is kind of a clear giveaway. The choice of paper kind of indicates the status of these things as as you know more informal you know private studies. They would typically be stored in the studio, in portfolios, or tacked up on the walls, you know, kind of shared and discussed with fellow artists, pupils, that kind of thing. 
and all the all, all the oil studies on paper in the exhibition are mounted on canvas and framed like oil paintings but that kind of presentation of the work would have really only happened after they entered the market so we have a wall of early oil studies a nice wall of about five of them from from around 1830 to kind of just represent that aspect of his practice and you know a majority of these oil studies or etude you know are done in the sort of the earlier years of his career when he's most busy traveling around. I think, you know, these works have been greatly valued and have certainly been written into a narrative of, you know, this sort of, of open air painting kind of culminating with impressionism and they, they have a kind of privileged status in the myth of the artist. But I think, but I think, you know, that ignores massive aspects of his production. And I mean, he is wedded to studio practice and, that's where that's where the memory and imagination come into play that's where all manner of artifice in terms of composition in terms of palette come into play and composition there are many many salon paintings in the show i mean that that's the majority of material in the show we have about a half dozen salon paintings for instance we have a number of cabinet pictures that were done for private collectors which were largely studio productions. I mean, that's where the focus of painting was for Russo. And I think we probably overstated the degree to which he painted outdoors. I think the vast majority of what he did outdoors were, you know, in dry graphic media and, and watercolor and that kind of thing, you know, graphite drawings, charcoal drawings, chalk drawings, little notations on the site. And then he would, you know, elaborate his compositions further in the studio and, and work up towards a, a larger scale. Let's try to point to let's try to point people to a, a specific salon painting as a way of being able to show on manpodcast.com a good contrast to to some of the other earlier stuff or outdoor well, stuff. Well, there's, there's one wall in the show where we have a drawing and a painting side by side. One is a black chalk study done in um, the early 1840s on a long trip that Rousseau took to the Berry region in central France, and it shows a a kind of a screen of trees silhouetted against the sky and there's kind of a the, kind of the edge of a big pond in the foreground those are sort of the dominant features of this drawing uh, on the done on this kind of uh, relatively large scale drawing done on this kind of nice tan colored paper which has darkened a little bit over time and then next to it in the show a little bit bigger uh, an oil painting done on canvas that Rousseau began on that trip to the Berry, like maybe back at whatever his lodgings were. You know, he was started to work on this composition for an important patron of his, important early patron. And then he continued and and on the painting over the course of the next year and, you know, and, and did the majority of it in Paris in his studio there. Finished it around 1843, I think. And it's one of the most textbook Rousseau paintings. It's in every art history survey text. It basically shows the same screen of trees with this really intense autumnal tones in the, the foliage, oranges and reds and yellows against this unbelievably deep blue sky. There's this complementary contrast between the sort of the oranges and the blue that's just very striking. It's a very strong picture. But when you compare this, you know, this sort of drawing done, we presume uh, on the spot more or less, and then the painting that kind of came from it, yes, he adapts the group of trees, but he 
quite dramatically alters their proportions in terms of the sort of the height and the this kind of thickness of the trunks. The foreground, there's no pond to be seen anywhere. It, it's kind of you're kind of in the in the scrub off off this country road basically and then there's a little chain of mountains in the far distance behind the tree and so the whole setting is in a way invented when you compare it to the at least vis-a-vis the 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 original drawing the trees have changed quite a bit and then of course there's there's this intense intense palette which is where the sort of the feeling of the picture is is strongest so that juxtaposition is really illustrates and underscores how much artifice and invention is happening. And yet, you know, the link to the original study is still there. It's it's not so so dramatically different that, you know, this is pure invention. Like this was a group of trees that he studied and and he really makes a point of rendering them with, you know, this incredible sort of specificity, tiny little textured dabs of paint where you really, from a distance especially, you feel like you're getting every little irregular aspect of the surface of the bark and every leaf on the tree, even though when you get up close, it's actually quite painterly. Um, just a beautiful, beautiful picture. The drawing is known as Under the Birches Evening. The painting is known as Evening. They're both in Toledo, even though the museum acquired them 40 years apart. Well done, Toledo. My guest is Scott Allen. We'll be right back after a break. Often referred to as America's Jewel Box, the Kimball Art Museum is celebrated around the globe for its iconic architecture and collection of masterpieces. Important paintings by Duccio, Fra Angelico, Michelangelo, Caravaggio, Poussin, Velazquez, Monet, Picasso, and Matisse, as well as international antiquities, shine in the pearly light of the Louis Kahn Design Galleries. A second building, designed by famed architect Renzo Piano, opened in 2013 and provides space for special exhibitions, dedicated classrooms, and an auditorium with excellent acoustics for music. Visit KimballArt.org for more information. Join J. Paul Getty Trust President Jim Cuno in a new podcast, Art and Ideas. In the debut episodes, discover the history of porcelain with potter and author Edmund DeWall. Explore the depth of visual intelligence with art historian Eve Alambois on Ellsworth Kelly. Delve into the formative years of Los Angeles-based architect Frank Gehry. Unearth the ancient past with archaeologist Colin Renfrew. And examine the history of Black Mountain College with curator Helen Molesworth. Available on getty.edu slash podcasts, or search for it in your favorite podcast player. And now back to my conversation with Scott Allen. You know, so speaking of, of, of color and the occasionally quite striking, almost... I don't know, not quite shocking, but certainly unexpected color we often get in Rousseau. You note in one of your essays that Rousseau's greens, his his use, the different greens he used were notoriously shocking for the time. How so and why? I think it's largely a question of quantity. You know, in sort of academic and studio conventions, you know, paradoxically, landscape artists are not, you know, somewhat gingerly in their use of green. I've spoken to artists and green is a tough color to use, I am told. With Rousseau, there's there's one picture from the National Gallery of Canada in Ottawa in the show showing a part of the forest in the park of Saint-Cloud. 
uh, not far from Paris. And it's really like this wall of greenery that that dominates many, many different tones of green and some quite intense. And this type of thing was shocking to viewers in, you know, in the 1830s and 1840s. And Rousseau was kind of, you know, accused of just sort of, you know, throwing plates of spinach in, you know, people's faces. <laughs> A lot of that has to do with the, um, the sort of the perceived uh, sketchiness and looseness of the handling as well. That, you know, this is, these were these kind of chaotic, masses of paint but the amount of green and the sort of the unabashed embrace of green and the kind of intensity of tone that he would push green towards this was relatively new and this and this was remarked upon at the time and it's also important to remember that you know in the 19th century we have a lot of new chemical pigments coming into play and while the palette of Rousseau and his Barbizon contemporaries was, you know, largely traditional with um, traditional earth pigments and mineral pigments and the like that artists have been using for a long time. They're also starting to incorporate the new, you know, chemical pigments that have been, in, you know, invented in the late 18th and early 19th century. So he does use things like emerald green, and it's usually pretty easy to spot in his pictures. It's really kind of bright and intense green. He doesn't use necessarily tons of it, but it it it, it gets incorporated into the traditional palette. So maybe also the, the pigments that he's introducing that add to the greenness of some of his pictures. Speaking of, of these trees, Rousseau quite often clusters trees together as in the old park of St. Cloud that we were we were just discussing the National Gallery of Canada painting that's kind of something you see in in say Poussin where you often get just big groupings of trees and no single individual tree really stands out it certainly doesn't anchor a composition whereas Rousseau especially as his career goes on gets more and more interested in allowing a single dominant tree to hold an entire painting together, such as a painting like Mourning from around 1850. Is that just a simple example of an artist doing what interests him compositionally at a given time in his life? Or is there a reason why sometimes or even often he lets a tree dominate an entire painting? Well, let's see. There's, I think, a number of different ways to approach that question. I mean, first of all, you know, Trees is one of the more complex natural organisms that does have a kind of an anthropomorphic dimension, you know, vertical trunk, branches, and so on. There is a way that, you know, trees are the equivalent for Rousseau of, you know, the heroic human figure, you know, in academic history painting. Trees are the main vehicle of expression for Rousseau and there's tremendous sort of particularization and individualization to his trees. One really gets this sense, even if it's a tree painted from memory, that this is informed by a deep and sustained study of, of actual examples. And by isolating a single example or a small group of trees, you know, they, they really carry the feeling and, and the expression of the work. And there's a, there's a heroic aspect to them. Often the, he plays with scale and takes some liberties of scale so the trees seem you know really seem gargantuan sometimes when you really think about them it 
next to the small human figures he sometimes includes or even next to some of the surrounding trees or trees in the background he's really aggrandizing you know certain heroic examples especially you know sort of his beloved oak trees you know which have kind of the most expressive branching and and what have you so there's definitely a romantic aspect there and there is there is a sense that russo is trying to do with landscape painting you know kind of elevate it to a level of poetic feeling that one normally associates with pictures that depend on the human figure so there's there's that there's also his academic training i mentioned the rome prize at the beginning and one of the preliminary trials in the sort of sequence of trials that made up the the Rome Prize competition, artists, you know, were, you know, locked in a room and they had to produce an image of a tree. The species was designated for them. They had to produce an image of a tree silhouetted against the sky from memory. That was part of the, that was part of their training and that was part of the competition. And there's a way that, you know, that basic academic exercise of the tree study and it's kind of recall in memory becomes like Rousseau's stock in trade. Like with these pictures you mentioned where, you know, you have one example in particular kind of silhouetted against the sky. He does this kind of thing repeatedly, you know, starting in the 1840s and 1850s and were very successful with collectors and they do provide, it's a device to sort of focalize the composition. Rousseau, you know, thinks very ecologically. He has a kind of an ecological sensibility. There's a whole book written about that aspect of his work. And there's a way that trees are really the center of this kind of absorbing ecological drama for Rousseau, you know, rooted in the earth, drawing moisture from the soil, like, you know, growing up into the sky, you know, doing the whole photosynthesizing thing. You know, they're sort of, they're the sort of the linchpin of the whole sort of natural cycle for, for Rousseau. So that's sort of the that in many ways is the narrative of some of his pictures, this sort of this cycle of nature as it kind of unfolds uh, in and through and around uh, the heroic tree. And then there's, you know, there, there's, there are other artistic explanations too. When he goes to certain regions of France and he's confronted with kind of vast plains, kind of these sort of non-motifs and to give his and he devises new compositional strategies to deal with those kind of landscapes. And often what you see with works like the, the Toledo picture we were just discussing is he'll, he'll kind of focalize the viewer's attention with a central tree or group of trees in particular in the middle of the composition. Often that group of trees and the sort of the kind of halo of light that often sort of surrounds them in the middle ground creates a kind of an ocular compositional structure so that you really feel like you're you're not just seeing nature in an unmediated way but you're seeing it through this really intensely fixated eye <laughs> and and trees are at, at sort of at, at the center of that fixation it's the same way a church tower might exist in a jan van goyen or a vermeer in a in a, in a dutch in a, in, a, in a very broad dutch landscape or cityscape is there an element of nationalism or reference to nation in the way Rousseau presents forests and trees and, and heroic trees? I think so. I mean, I didn't really get into that in, in the show or the catalog. It's been, it's sort of been dealt with 
elsewhere. There was an important exhibition in St. Louis and Kansas City a few years ago called, I think it was called uh, Visions of France or Visions of Nation. It had um, several titles at several venues. Simon Kelly was the curator and he was, uh, it's a great show. It's a great book. He was on the podcast. We'll have a link to it on manpodcast.com. Oh, great. So there was a, there's a famous forest interior picture featuring oak trees that was included in in that show of Simon's and there's definitely the oak tree was sort of redolent with all of these kind of ancient Gallic kinds of associations druidic associations poetic associations sort of the ancient oak you know is sort of for Russo and a lot of his romantic co-generationists was very much a kind of an archetypally French sort of tree and it's what he definitely was drawn to the most and the Getty painting shows a you know an area of the forest of Fontainebleau that was particularly noted for its stands of oak trees and one of the things that most kind of infuriated and upset Rousseau was sort of modern silviculture practices and what was happening in that regard in the forest of Fontainebleau where there was sort of the systematic introduction of non-native like pine trees that would kind of grow you know grow fast be harvested and and for Rousseau this was a real sort of like foreign invasion of these sort of Russian Germanic <laughs> kinds of trees so there there was this kind of there was this weird way that trees were you know caught up in these sort of nationalistic kind of attitudes so yeah it's really it's it's really fascinating and I, I think it's absolutely there I mean the fact that Rousseau really focused on French landscape specifically you know never really traveled outside of France like a little bit in you know you know in the the Alpine borders in the East, you know, with Switzerland, but basically stayed in France his entire life, rejected that Italian pilgrimage and all the kind of cultural baggage associated with it. And really set about, at least as his biographer, Alfred Sancier describes it to be a peintre des pays, sort of a painter of the French regions. This was very much part of the plan for Rousseau. And if you think about it, I mean, with the French Revolution and then, you know, all of the imperial adventures of the Napoleonic era, this is the moment where sort of the notion of the unified French state really begins. And, and so there is this national, a new sense of new sense of nationhood that's being formed over the course of the 19th century and landscape plays a big role in that. I mentioned Daubigny a while ago, I think in the first question. They're born about five years apart. They play on some of the same turf, both, well, almost literally. Did they have a relationship? What What was it like? You know, that it's a very good question, and I've come across precious little uh, about about d- direct interaction between them. Obviously, they were exhibiting in the salons in the same years, and you know, as artists, you know, focused on Paris for exhibitions in the market and whatnot, they must have crossed cross paths but i i really don't know the extent of their relationship you know russo was very close with jules dupre in 1830s and 40s and then in the 1850s and 60s he was very close with jean francois Millet in barbizon daubigny is not really associated with barbizon in the forest of fontainebleau his main locus of activity is the was river and that valley sort of north north of paris and the forest of fontainebleau is some i don't know 60 kilometers or something sort of south and east of Paris. So they were, their main focal points of landscape activity were on opposite sides of Paris. And 
But it's interesting to see with the rise of landscape painting in the middle of the 19th century, how artists definitely develop certain kind of niche specialties. And for Daubigny, that was the, you know, all of his was river landscapes. And he had his studio boat and he was out on the river, on the Seine as well, doing all these river landscapes. And that was hugely influential for an artist like Monet, who also would have a studio boat and do river landscapes. So there, there would be a close connection between those two artists. Whereas Rousseau became really, you know, famous and known as, you know, a painter of trees and forests, and that became his artistic identity. So artists like that, they kind of, you know, worked around each other, developed, and their art developed in different directions, depending on, you know, the, the kind of motifs that they focused on. There's this artist, Troyon, who started work, you know, started out working in the Forest of Fontainebleau, but eventually gravitated towards the Normandy coast and then became as famous for all of his sort of cows and fields near the Normandy coast pictures. So artists definitely kind of carved out their their sort of areas of specialization and and kind of were working in different regions, all pretty close to Paris within striking distance so that they could get back and, you know, work in their studios there and, you know, keep up their contacts in the market and, and with the critics and what have you. So there must have been, there must have been interactions in Paris that are just not, you know, recorded. But, you know, I, I wish we knew a little bit more because Daubigny really is an, an, an important figure to consider in relationship to an artist like Rousseau. So in 1867, Rousseau dies. At the time of his death, what we would now call Impressionism has barely just started or was barely just starting. What did people think of Rousseau at the end of his life? What was his standing? It's complicated. Starting in the late 1850s in the Salon is critics increasingly have a tough time with Rousseau's latest paintings which are sort of the more obsessively worked paintings, you know, lots of lots of tiny touches, you know, many layers worked on paintings over many years. There was a sense that with his public exhibition pieces, like there was a certain fatigue setting in for a lot of critics. At the same time, some of his earlier work is being shown in different venues in Paris. And then at the very end of his life, a couple enterprising dealers, Durand Ruel, Paul Durand Ruel and Hector Brahm, buy up a whole bunch of Rousseau's uh, studio contents, including a lot of his early painted studies, etudes like from the 1830s, these little oil sketches on paper. And this is a big kind of speculative gamble for them, but they sense the market potential and they hold an exhibition of more than 100 works of these so-called painted studies of Rousseau's in a, an exclusive uh, collector's club in Paris, the Cercle des Arts, at the same time as the Salon, where Rousseau has a painting, and you know, more or less at the same time as the World's Fair, you know, big international exhibition. And there was a good selection of Rousseau's work in, in that in the French section of that show. But this show of painted studies was a real revelation to a lot of like critics and collectors. And you get a lot of critics saying that how much they prefer some of these youthful, more spontaneous studies of Rousseau's to his latest exhibition pieces. So it depends which kinds of, you know, so there's a sense that Rousseau is a kind of a complex and contradictory and uh, mixed sort of artist. But, you know, by this point, he's also, you know, he's being written into art history. He's, he's very well established. He's kind of acknowledged as one of the leading modern masters. 
and, and that's certainly happening at the World's Fair and, you know, in the years that, that follow. But as the private work kind of comes out, you know, critics have to kind of grapple with this kind of weird variety and um, this sort of extreme stylistic range, the sort of the obsessively finished work and then this kind of very much, much less finished work. There are few people who like every single aspect of Rousseau's art. Like the critical, the critical assessments are always qualified in some fashion. You know, he never really settles into a comfortable signature style like Coro, say. You know, it's the, the self-contradiction that is both in some ways a strength, you know, because it represents a certain creative freedom and restlessness, which kind of plays into certain romantic myths of the artist that are pretty solid at this point. But it also makes, you know, the, the flip side is that, you know, somehow Rousseau is this kind of weird, mixed, uneven kind of artist who's kind of hard to pigeonhole and boil down into a nice kind of critical formulation. So it's, there are a lot of, lot of different opinions about Rousseau's work, given its range. Scott Allen, thanks so much for talking with me. Absolutely, Tyler. It was a pleasure. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents High Society, the Portraits of Franz X. Winterhalter, celebrating the elegance and unrivaled brilliance of the renowned portraitist of 19th century European aristocracy. Some 45 master paintings are complemented by clothing created by sought-after fashion designer Charles Frederick Worth and his contemporaries. Now on view. Visit mfah.org slash high society for more. The major retrospective Bruce Connor, It's All True, is now on view at the Museum of Modern Art in Manhattan. Touching on various themes of post-war society, from rising consumer culture to the dread of nuclear apocalypse, Connor's art was widely recognized for its originality and daringly dark subject matter. Throughout August, you can enjoy live music inspired by the exhibition in the Abbey Aldrich Rockefeller Sculpture Garden at Summer Thursdays. Get the full schedule and tickets at MoMA.org and plan your visit today. Welcome back. Now a segment from my 2014 conversation with St. Louis Art Museum curator Simon Kelly. He co-curated the exhibition Impressionist France, Visions of Nation from Legray to Monet with April M. Watson of the Nelson Atkins. Despite the show's title, it wasn't about Impressionist painting. Instead, it looked at how artists, painters and photographers, engaged with and helped shape France's emerging national identity between 1850 and about 1880, a period which includes the last 20 years of Rousseau's career and during which France cycled through several governments and lost the Franco-Prussian War, and along with it Alsace and Lorraine, to Germany. Simon Kelly, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thanks, Tyler. It's good to be here. Your show, Impressionist France, has the I word in the title, but it's not so much a show of Impressionist paintings, is it? It's more a show about France and its 19th century emergence as a nation, it looks like. Yeah, I mean, I started from the, the basic premise of, of nation, uh, the idea of, of nationhood, and really sort of you know worked out from there, you know, thinking about the ways in which uh, painters and photographers, and we look at the period uh, from 1850 to 1880, that uh, me and my co-curator April Watson at the Nelson Atkins, we look at the period from 1850 to 1880, and, and the ways in which painters and photographers um, really explore uh, the French nation, the ways, the ways they travel around France, uh, explore its history and geography, and in so doing, really construct an idea of what, what France meant. So before this period, what had France meant? 
Well, I mean, France had meant a lot of things, but uh, France in you know in the 18th, 30th, 19th century was a nation of, of very distinct regions. You know, what we we explore in the exhibition is is the rise of a, a travel network in France in, in the mid 19th century, the rise of the railroad, in particular, and the ways in which that helps to kind of centralize France, bind the regions together, and France from being a kind of conglomerate of, of separate regions starts to become a nation, starts to become the idea of France. And um, so that, that's an important development that I think you see uh, in the 19th century and which you know, we explore particularly through sort of lens of, of landscape imagery. I guess just to give people some context, a really interesting stat you cite in your catalog essay is that you know, at about this time, Paris is home to 2 million people. The next two largest cities in France are one-tenth that size each. Right, right. Yeah, I mean France is a, is a is a very you know uh, it's a very centralized country around Paris. So you know so that that is something that that, that is interesting in which you know we explore in in, in the catalogue and, and Paris as a kind of symbol of, of of France and and certainly the way that Paris is transformed in in the in in the mid nineteenth century by Napoleon III is you know symbolic of his his wider aspirations for for the Renaissance of France. The catalog for the exhibition is 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 really gorgeous, and even with all of the, the the bright paintings, landscape paintings, cityscapes of Paris, kind of the real stunner of the catalog, and I suspect of the exhibition, is seeing dozens of photographs of 19th century France next to paintings or in proximity to paintings, which is not something American audiences are at all accustomed to, not even in American galleries or in exhibitions of 19th century American art. How did you come to the decision that the ideas you wanted to show in the show could best be or maybe only be be demonstrated by by mixing those two media well i mean the show was was always it was always intended to be about visual culture it was, it was about you know placing painting within a broader context and you know as i as I spoke to April about the show and we developed it i mean i I, I realized just how important uh, photography was to framing of nationhood in, in the period that we examined and and the ways in which the state, in particular, you know, sponsored various photographic activities to, to document uh, France's history and its industrialization. So, um, really, photography became integral to the, the broader argument of nation in, in the exhibition. That you know, there, there was no way to do any kind of coherent exhibition. There was no way that we couldn't really foreground photography. Well, let's jump into the work right there. Then, can you give us a, a favorite example of how? either the nation or, in, or, or, or relevant industry, commissioned photography that communicated that idea to the public? Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Mission Holographique is, is a good example. That uh, was a, a mission uh, commissioned by the state in 1851. Uh, five photographers uh, were commissioned to, to travel around France, Gustave Le Gray, for example, Edouard Baudis, and to document the range of, uh, of monuments uh, around the French nation with a view to the, the later restoration and renovation of those monuments. So that's an important moment in terms of the documenting of uh, France's history. And you know, we explore that with, with, with several uh, photographs in the exhibition. So you have photographs in the catalog of the Chateau of Pierre Font, which is one of these monuments. There are photographs in the catalog of it, and there are paintings in, in the exhibition of it. What is the relationship between the paintings and photographs, and, and kind of what do we learn about 19th century France from them? Are you talking about particularly about that, that image or just in, in general? Yeah, that, that, those images, maybe the Huey, and I think there's a crow. Yeah, 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 sure. So, 
So the Paul Erd images of, uh, of the Chateau of Pierrefonds, I mean, that, those, are, those are important because they, they were both acquired by Napoleon III. Um, so, you know, it, it was important for me to, to think about the ways in which, you know, the state and Napoleon III in particular were, were trying to you know, promote particular ideas of nations through, uh, through their patronage. So both of those paintings were acquired by the emperor. One shows the chateau in ruins, and uh, the other shows the restored chateau. And Napoleon III had had, had financed the restoration, uh, working with uh, Viollet le Duc, kind of transforming it from this this ruin to a, a kind of you know how he he and Viollet le Duc imagined the a medieval chateau as should be. So it becomes this kind of sort of shimmering vision, uh, not necessarily absolutely. You know, true to how the, the chateau would necessarily have been, but uh, but certainly you know a a a kind of evocation of of the medieval world which impressed and you know the the, the chateau was supposed to impress. This was where Napoleon would entertain foreign dignitaries. It became a kind of glorified hunting lodge, a chateau uh, just outside of Paris. So you mentioned that your show kind of runs through much of the second half of the 19th century, 1850 to 1880 or so, kind of right smack in the almost middle of that time frame, I guess in about 1870, 1871, we have the Franco-Prussian War, which France loses, and badly, and loses two key provinces, Alsace and Lorraine. Could you give us an example of either a painting or a photograph of, of a pre-war French landscape and a post-war French landscape that tells us something about how France saw and wanted to see itself. Yeah, I mean that's uh, that's interesting. I mean there there are, there are several examples. I mean, one which is is interesting, I think, is the Gustave Doré landscape, which we did some research on that painting and, and managed to pin it down to uh, the Vosges forest uh, in in the east of France, which was it sort of straddled Alsace Lorraine, so it was part of that contested region. So, so when Doré uh, represented the area, uh, he painted that painting in the mid-1860s. It still belonged to France. It was, it was part of a whole number of works that he produced of that region. He was from that region, uh, very much part of his kind of regional patriotism. But he knew it was a contested region. At, at that point, it's celebrating you know, the area, but within, as you say, you know, with, within five years or so, the area would be, you know, would be lost uh, to, to, to Prussia. So... You know that painting is is, and I don't think this has really been pointed out before. It has has this real kind of weight of, of of uh, both regional and, and nationalistic resonance for you know for for the artist. That's Doré's deer in a pine forest. Yeah, I mean that, that, that you know, previously it, it had been given a sort of generic title and uh, Twilight in the Forest, but we managed to. Uh, you, you can actually see the the studio uh, stamp, uh, the posthumous studio stamp, if you look carefully at the bottom of the painting. So. You go into the studio sale catalogue. You can actually pin it down with the measurements to the particular title, and that that is a title which was in the studio sale catalogue. So you know, but from becoming a, a a general, a generic landscape, it becomes actually quite specific, and you know, works in nicely with the uh, with the exhibition theme. And and then I think you know, in terms of um, Manet as an artist, I, I love, and his 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 attitude to nation is so complex. So the Rue Monnier with flags is a is a great painting, and you know, on, on one level, is is celebrating France's history with the, you know, the festival at the time of the World's Fair in 1878, but on another level, with the inclusion of, of an amputee uh, in the painting, is is kind of referencing a you know darker side to to France's history. That that figure is generally seen as being a victim of the Franco-Prussian War or the Commune. So you know, th- those kind of elements of, of France's history, which was so important in terms of the construction of nation, you know, are referenced in in that in that painting, and you know, we wanted to bring that out, uh, certainly in the catalogue. 
and in the exhibition too. So. In that painting, the veteran is on crutches and he's moving down an empty street that is strewn with flags, and he's pretty much ignored by everyone around him. And in the catalog, you note how that painting contrasts with a Monet from the same year. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I think you know Monet's painting is much more overtly celebratory, uh, whereas Manet's you know painting it. You know, arguably exposes some of the hypocrisy of, you know, Marshall McMahon's um, regime at that time, which, you know, sought to, to to promote this idea of France as, you know, everything being being wonderful, but kind of, you know, glossing over the very real troubles and problems. And that is what, you know, Manny is, I, I think, seeking to expose in, in this painting and, and referencing that, as I say, that darker side, the communism is a fascinating, you know, moment in, in, in French history when, you know, arguably 20,000 communists were executed by, by government troops. And, and that, that is a, that's a time which you know, the, the, the government in the 1870s tried to gloss over. And you know, Manny is, 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 is referencing you know, that, that episode, I think, in, in this painting. Your exhibition also includes lots of paintings and photographs of, of the French Alps and the Swiss Alps, I guess, for that matter. In, in the years before the Franco-Prussian War, I had not thought of there being a whole lot of mountain paintings or mountain photographs in 19th century French art. So it was a revelatory section. Were there political reasons that the French were interested in, in depicting and then in seeing mountains or were these related to a potential or hoped for tourist market or I think I mean I think there were political reasons and, and related to, to France's changing borders uh, in 1860 France had acquired much of the Alps and and, and Mont, actually much of Mont Blanc from the kingdom of Sardinia and you know that that becomes an important moment in in terms of Napoleon III's promotion of, of of France, he goes to the Alps soon after, commissions uh, an album of photographs from the Bisson Frere, which are all about celebrating this new uh, acquisition of land for France, uh, the Mont Blanc and the Alps. And we, we include that album in the exhibition. And then we also look at the ways in which during the rest of the 1860s, you see a, a number of, of painters uh, representing the Alps. Um, and we argue that you can also see that within a nationalistic context. Uh, Francois-Louis Francais, uh, for example, uh, was the recipient of several uh, commissions from the state and represents a, an impressive view of, of Mont Blanc, which is a loan from the Musée d'Orsay. And, and finally, I'd like to ask you about the railroad and industry section of the show. I guess let's start with the painters. I guess we're all or we're, we're pretty familiar with images of railroad bridges and Monet's and of smokestacks and Pizarro's kind of from the early Impressionist years, the ways in which those puffs of, of smoke from trains or from belching smokestacks kind of merged with clouds. What about the emergence of industry interested the Impressionists, and did they expect the state and, and state acquisitors, if you will, to happily take notice? <laughs> well, I mean, one one of the things that is is interesting is actually how how long it took artists to, or painters specifically to to represent industry. You know, it's it's the photographers and printmakers too who are the who are the first to you know to actually represent the, the railroads and factories and the subjects in the 1850s and 1860s. So I, I think, you know, for for a lot of artists, that kind of subject matter was not seen as having sufficient status, you know, for the kind of artwork that you would see at the salon. So you can argue that, you know, when the Impressionists, who are the first artistic group to really, you know, represent the uh, the railroad and the factory, when they start to start to do that, it, it's it's a subversive gesture because, of, you know, they're questioning maybe conventional 
ideas to, you know, to kind of artistic genre and what one should or should not represent as a, as a kind of salon painter. So, you know, you start to see uh, Monet and, and Pizarro, Ilma representing the factory in a pretty systematic way uh, in, the, in the late 1860s onwards. And really kind of, you know, we, we argue relating it to their ideas of, of nations. So particularly in Monet's views at uh, Argentina in, in the 1870s, he, he's representing a a bridge which had recently been, been destroyed in, in the Franco-Prussian War, and you know we argue that his uh, and this is an argument which Paul Hayes Tucker has, has used in, in the past that in his his series of views of of that bridge are sort of symbolic of his his wider engagement with with uh, the Renaissance of France uh, post the Franco-Prussian War. In the catalog, there's a photograph of the destroyed bridge next to the the image of Monet's 1874, so post-war painting. So did French photographers explore, maybe that's not right, maybe that's not the right word, were, were French photographers as, as widely and intensively commissioned to make railroad photographs as their, their brethren in the United States, or did French railroad photography happen differently and for different reasons? Well, there, there is, I mean, there's quite extensive railroad photography patronage of, of Edouard Baudis, and that patronage generally comes from the railroad companies. Um, so you see the, uh, the the Northern Railroad Company, uh, for example, commissioning Baldus to to represent their their railroad and and also the railroad to uh, from Paris to to the Mediterranean. That railroad company commission commissioned Baldus. So so that that is generally you know where where you and there are you know significant numbers of of of, of railroad uh, photographs, but they, they're commissioned by the uh, the railroad companies generally, and they both show the the stations. Uh, uh, the railroad itself, um, but they also show them the monuments uh, along the railroad. So, you know, for example, in, in Baudius's views of the south of France, you, you get a whole series of views of the Roman ruins and the Roman monuments in the south uh, alongside the, you know, the railroad images. Several of those albums are in the show. Simon Kelly, thanks so much for talking with me. All right, great. Thanks, Tyler. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.